0: My name is Logan Dixon, and this is the Monday Morning Megaphone. Hey there! Welcome to the Monday Morning Megaphone. Uh, I am here with uh, Josh Summer of the Baptist Broadcast, and uh, we're here to talk about you know the heavy stuff of the doctrine of the Trinity, divine simplicity, and we'll, we might get into natural theology as well along the way. Uh, but before we get into all that. Uh, Josh, would you
1: like to introduce yourself to our audience here? Yeah, brother. First of all, thanks a lot for having me. I, I appreciate uh, the invitation to come on here and talk about this very, very important um, issue in, in theology. I, um, I'm just a guy. I, I, uh, I, I, I pastor uh, a church, uh, Victory Baptist Church here in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, so a lot of people think that when you're talking about Kansas City, you're automatically talking about the state of Kansas because that would, after all, make sense. <laughs> but because Kansas City's right on the state line and the uh, historically the city was 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 founded in Missouri. It's Kansas City, Missouri. And um, so uh, I've been pastoring there, serving that church for the last two and a half years. In fact, in April. Of 22, it will be three years that the Lord has had me there, and um, and in addition to that, uh, and and most importantly, I'm I'm a husband, and then I have uh, three children, uh, all ages three and under, and uh, two boys and a little girl who just turned one, and um, and then you know whenever I I have I have time in addition to uh, church work and family time uh i i write and podcast on the on the baptist broadcast and uh it's actually been a lot of the the content on there that's been thrown up on on you know social media and and uh uh, that people have seen so uh i'm i'm grateful that that has had a my little side you know project has had a had some effect and and it's been useful i think so uh you know that's uh that's pretty much it in a nutshell i um uh i i'm again I'm, I'm grateful that you've you've invited me to to be on here and and look forward to our conversation well good
0: good sounds like you're living the dream man <laughs> uh, and speaking of the baptist broadcast um uh, it has gotten some attention uh, the the first it came to uh uh, the first I noticed it, and I think the first couple of my friends noticed it, is whenever you did that review of Jeff Johnson's book, uh, The Failure of Natural Theology. Um, and that was that was eye-opening for me, um, because I I saw all of these people giving it rave reviews, And I had never read it myself, but I kind of understood where Jeff Johnson was coming from because I've heard I've heard him say several things about Aquinas and natural theology. And I've seen that. And then I thought, well, if if this book is anything like what I've seen and what I've heard, it seems to me like he's not actually read much of Aquinas
1: Yeah yeah that uh, unfortunately that seems to be the case uh just if you're you know if you're if you if you read through that book and you compare uh you know m- many of the claims that Dr. Johnson makes they don't coincide very well with what you would actually read in the Summa Theologiae uh because a, a lot of the a lot of the quotations in that book are 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 not contextualized, and that's not just, you know, I'm not just talking about Aquinas there. I'm talking about his use of bovink and R.C. Sproul and some others. Um, and so the whole idea with the with the book review, the three three part book review, I did, and the reason I did it in three parts um, was because I I there was a lot to uh, to address, and um, and I thought it would be most useful for. Uh, the audience so uh, the idea there though was to was to kind of get ahead of the controversy a little bit uh, I wanted to be able to in a sense control the situation because I knew that this book was going to be, um, it was going to be released at the more popular level. It's not necessarily an, an a, a heavy hitting academic work or anything like that, um, and uh, it certainly doesn't read like one. And so it's more at the at the popular level, and and because of that, I wanted to do I wanted to do the the book reviews. The um, th- but there were a lot of people who you know at the more academic level were saying I we can't review this. I mean it's just We'd have to write a book to review this book, and uh, because it's 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 virtually from an academic standpoint, it, it was it was it was unreviewable. There were there were people out there saying that. So I, but but I wanted to review it because I you know I I knew that it was going to be a book marketed toward uh, the popular level reader, uh, the person in the pew, and you know just thinking from a pastoral standpoint, that was that was my. Uh, chief concern there so well that was an important review um, because I think you addressed
0: a lot of issues that needed to be addressed and you you shed some light on the fact that there is um, maybe divisions too strong of a word there's disagreement uh, within the 1689 camp about these issues and mm-hmm. so it's not it's not just the vast majority of 1689 confessional Baptists are not being represented by the GBTS guys.
1: Right. It's a, this is an issue that, that, I mean, it goes back further than this, but, but when, um, when this issue really came to a head in terms of particular Baptist circles was, I don't know if you're familiar at all with the, with, with ARBCA, the Association of Reformed Baptist Churches of America. Um, And ARBCA dealt with a controversy back in, I would say uh, 14, 2014, 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there, before and after, as well. Uh, they dealt with a controversy over impassibility. Um, this I, this language in our confession, in chapter two, article one, of God being without body parts or passions, and that that being without passions came under scrutiny. Uh, by a certain wing of uh, Arbca, of churches that were part of, uh, of Arbca. And, um, and that, that uh, controversy led to uh, somewhat of a large split in the association, or, or, or at least it ended in, in several churches departing from the association. And, um, and a lot of the people who departed the association on those grounds uh, are also involved in and behind Johnson's efforts and Grace Bible Theological Seminary's efforts at setting forth uh, this particular understanding of natural theology and the doctrine of God that seems to be inherent to it. And so, uh, and I say they're involved. I don't think they're you know necessarily directly involved, but but these guys are 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 related to one another in in the sense that they all are kind of on the same page with regard to this more personalist understanding of of theology proper so it's it's been a it's been a controversy that's been in the in the boiling pot for some time uh there's there's a number of years behind uh Johnson's book in the sense that you know he's just brought several assumptions and beliefs to the surface that perhaps were not Brought to the surface as much uh, before over the last several years. So,
0: sure. Now, now going back to that controversy in Arca, is that is that kind of what uh, sparked the idea of uh, there? There was a thick book published around that time called The Impassable God. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of what gave birth to that, or is yeah,
1: or... yep, that is exactly correct. Uh, there was a position paper written. Uh, within by those who were in the association um uh by good men who who desired to clarify uh the issue um and it was it was quite a lengthy position paper and um as far as my understanding is concerned i'm not familiar with all the details because i really frankly wasn't related to arp all that long um it 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 kind of developed into that into that series of essays that make up that volume. And so that volume is actually a very helpful book in terms of understanding impassibility and, and the importance of it, the significance of it. Um, and, uh, but yeah, that's definitely certainly related to that, to that controversy. Okay. Cause I, I remember
0: listening to Doctrine and Devotion around that time and they,
1: they were talking to the general editor
0: of the impassible God. I can't remember right. who, who it was. I think it was Renahan.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: I, I, it could be Renahan. I'm not sure.
1: It, yeah um, it, there, there are several names involved in that in that in that book uh, so yeah but uh, moving on to the topic of divine
0: simplicity I've been I was watching your video on classical theism um, in preparation for this and uh, it you you shared a lot of interesting things about the Trinity uh, things that I thought were very helpful and I would like for you to kind of rehash some of that. Uh, about God's
1: relationships, God's relationship to his attributes. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, this seems to be uh, an issue that is, uh, is, is more and more uh, pressed upon uh, in this conversation. It wasn't so much uh, an issue in, in Dr. Johnson's book, uh, but it, as the conversation is kind of uh, boiled over into other areas, uh, this is becoming more and more of a of a central uh, of a central issue, and so um, the the crux of divine simplicity, and really and really where people stumble on the doctrine the most is really within the context of considering God's attributes, and uh, you know whenever you sit through Sunday school at your local church or. Uh, even maybe take a a seminary class. Uh, usually, one of the big sections that that you know either pastors or or professors go through with regard to theology proper is going to be God's attributes and kind of enumerating God's attributes and and going through the incommunicable and the communicable attributes, making those important distinctions and so on and so forth. And um, a lot of that conversation on God's attributes has been disconnected in recent history from the doctrine of divine simplicity. And so what it looks like is here you have a bunch of properties or attributes, and these properties or attributes make God who he is, right? So that's that's just kind of the unwitting uh, assumption. Uh, maybe uh, the majority of the laity wouldn't necessarily put it that way, but but when it's disconnected from the doctrine of divine simplicity in that context... Uh, then, then it's very easy to make that assumption such that when the issue comes up, like it is now, uh, the, you know, a large swath of the laity uh, just kind of assumes that these are really, truly distinct properties in God that kind of inform his essence in some way, such that if he didn't have one or the other, he really wouldn't be the same God. Um, And so what you what you end up having is a a God who is contingent or dependent upon these properties or these attributes to be what or who he is. Um, And the whole project of divine simplicity is to deny uh, contingency or dependency in the divine essence by virtue of saying all that is in God is God. God does not depend upon that which is more basic than Himself to be what He is. So, hmm. in other words, th- there are not things in God upon which God is depending to be to be what He is at present. So, let me give you a creaturely example um, that would illustrate what I'm what I'm trying to say there. Myself, right? Or 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 you, Logan? I mean, we we are we are comp- we are composite creatures. We're composed. Um, and and most basically, you could say we're we, we're composed of of body and soul. If you hold to a dichotomous understanding of of of, of uh, anthropology, uh, and some would say we're composed of body, soul, and spirit. Okay, that's fine. The bottom line is we're composed, right? Those are those are parts uh, that that make us what we are as human beings. Um, without a soul, I would not be a human. And without a body, I would not be complete, um, which is why, you know, when we talk about the resurrection of the body, uh, it's very important that we're not functionally Gnostic on that point, but that we believe that the Lord indeed is going to raise these bodies uh, and and reunite them with, with our souls, um, because that's what a complete human being is. So we are composed, and then you can drive down further, of course, and say, you know, we're composed of more than just body and soul, we're composed of... You know, intellect and will uh, within the soul. Uh, We are composed of uh, body parts, um, eyes, ears, nose, you know, arms, legs, and the list could go on and then, you know, get down to the cellular level. And it's innumerable how how many parts uh, that we're composed with. Um, So we're composed. God is not composed. And that's what the doctrine of divine simplicity teaches. It's non-composition. Which means that God is not composed of parts, and that's a very absolute. Uh, that's a very absolute phrase. It's a very unqualified statement. Um, God is not composed of parts, body parts, metaphysical parts, abstract parts, what have you. Um, he's 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 pure act. He's not uh, made to be what he is by anything. Uh, whether it be some cause from, 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 outside of him, or whether it be, you know, parts that that come together to make him what he is, uh, internally. So God is God is simple, not composed.
0: Now you're explaining this to me, and that that seems to make sense to me. Yeah. I, so I don't understand why that seems to be a controversial
1: topic. Um. So what I think the you know, with the modern, you know, with the what the contemporary objections have been kind of assuming is is the problem of what we would call modal collapse. And um this is what William Dr. William Lane Craig talks about quite often. That essentially if you if you make all of God's properties or all of God's attributes one with his essence, that is, you know, God is his will, knowledge, love, you know etc., 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 God just is his attributes, um, then you end up with what's called modal collapse. And what a modal collapse is, is, is I'll give you an example. If you say God's knowledge, for example, or God's will, let's say, is one with his essence, and his essence is necessary, we would say it's not, it's not contingent, it's necessary, then it would follow that the effects of his will are also themselves necessary, all right, and so you collapse, you you collapse, um, uh, you collapse uh, contingency and necessity into one. Everything becomes necessary. That's the concern. And what 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 you know, those such as uh, Dr. James White has been getting at uh, lately is, well, it doesn't make any sense to say you know that love and uh, and and grace or, or justice for that matter are all one in god because love is 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 obviously on its face defined differently than justice is right so it doesn't make sense to say that love and justice are really one and the same in god all right so this is what you were getting at with the with the question concerning god's attributes but now that we kind of have a doctrine of simplicity in the background we can talk about this uh, i think more accurately so so that that that's the concern. people don't want to end up with this kind of pantheistic result uh you know that 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 now that now that we say all of God's attributes are one with his essence that that follows that really creation is necessary because God's will and knowledge, etc all necessary and that means that the effects are necessary as well. Um, so how do we how do we deal with like Dr. White's concern, for example when it when it comes to, identifying the divine attributes. It doesn't make sense to do that, he says, because love and justice, for example, are, are defined differently. Um, well, there there have been various ways set forth, uh, one one way in particular that has kind of won the day, uh, in terms of how we, we should talk about the distinction between God's attributes, uh, because there is a distinction between God's attributes. The question is, is what is the distinction. So sometimes when you just say the divine essence is all of God's attributes um you know people get confused because they're like well obviously we make distinctions between love and justice why do, why do we make a distinction between those things when they're all really one in the divine essence it kind of makes it nonsense to talk about attributes in that in that way then. And the, and the reality is, is, is no, it's, it's not really nonsense to, to talk about God's attributes that way, because there's a way of distinguishing God's attributes uh, that is uh, alternate to a real distinction. In other words, uh, when we distinguish God's attributes, we're not really understanding there to be a, an actual ontological, to use a, a $10 term, distinction in God. Rather, we're understanding there to be a, a formal distinction. That is a, a distinction uh, in terms and their definitions. But really, when we're talking about God in himself, these are things that cannot really be distinguished in him um, mm. because God is the perfection of all of these things. So, um, so of course, we distinguish these things in virtue of their definitions and how we talk about them and how we use them in our, in our creaturely predication as we speak and talk and think about God. Uh, but really in God, uh, they're, they're, they're not distinct. Uh, and, and one thing, one thing we have, we have to keep in mind, Logan, and one thing that I think has been lost uh, in, in this conversation is the, is the very important distinction between univocal language and analogical language. So um, when, when we, when we posit Love in God, when we posit light in God, holiness in God, justice in God, uh, what we're saying is is there is something like, right? There's something similar to what we understand to be love and justice and holiness in God, but we can't really get our arms around what that means. Um, and we can't really define it because we are we are, we are limited to finite and creaturely terms, um, and God is infinite, which which means that you know God's holiness, His justice, and you know the list goes on of His attributes; those are all infinite as well. Um, and and so, if that's the case, then then I'm severely limited in my finite predication concerning God I can't my my words as a creature cannot get their their linguistic arms around uh, around who God is uh, we cannot comprehend God this is why you know incomprehensibility is an important doctrine um, and so uh, you know I would just initially start with that that's kind of a you know a, a dumping a lot out here and and a lot to chew on but you um, there is a way to speak rightly i think about god's attributes and and to distinguish them in our systematic theology and all of that but we have to understand that when it comes to the divine essence we have to remote or remove all real distinctions in the divine essence um b- because we d- we don't want to split the essence we don't want to we don't want to introduce composition into the essence uh, because at that point we'd also be introducing contingency or dependence into the divine essence. So we want to, we want to, you know, however we talk about God, we we cannot imply contingency or dependency in the in the holy divine essence. Sure. And th- this
0: matters, like obviously this matters on on the academic level, but this also absolutely matters in the life of the church, right? Oh absolutely. And and so um, how do we how how do we explain the importance of this to our congregation? Like to, to the faithful church member who shows up on Sunday mornings with their Bible wanting to hear the good news?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good question. One of the things that that I've tried to point out uh, throughout the uh, duration of this conversation over the last few months, and and to my own congregation, is how important uh, it is to 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 consistently affirm necessity of the divine essence and uh, immutability. Uh, along with that, you know, if God's not composed, he's 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 certainly not composed of 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 actuality and potentiality, uh, which is basically just to say that there's no Passive potential in God that He could be other than what He is. So divine simplicity is very much related to immutability, and those two doctrines uh, talk to one another quite a bit. And um, you know, take take the doctrine of divine immutability, for example, which can which which can be discussed at the level of the ivory tower, and it can be very abstract and difficult to understand. But but uh, take the doctrine of divine immutability and and make it the context of Scripture. Why do we believe that Scripture, the the composition of which spans, uh, you know, roughly two thousand years, and then we're we're two thousand years about after the completion of the New Testament canon, right? So why do we why do we say that continue to say two thousand years after the close of the canon uh, that this book this this composite of 66 books uh, of inspired Holy Writ, why do we say that they're, number one, inspired, and why does that matter that they're inspired? Uh, We say because they're inspired, they're inerrant and infallible. Why are they inerrant and infallible? Um, When we say the scriptures are infallible, what we're saying is that they're unable to err. They're unable to become wrong. They're unable to be found in error. And that's a really strong claim, and it's a really strong claim that ultimately has to be grounded in who God is, in who, in who its author is. Um, and so, it, infallibility uh, really rests upon the doctrine of divine immutability, and immutability really rests on, in some sense, the doctrine of divine simplicity. And so, if you're going to say that there's change in God, or if you're going to say that there's dependence or contingency in God then you have really removed the objective basis for your claim that Scripture is what we confess it as Christians to be. That is, that it is infallible. Uh, It's unable to err. Because if God changes, ultimately, uh, to bring this down to the the very practical level, if God changes, then Scripture can change too. In its relevance to your life, in its relevance to your salvation and your redemption— Uh, Because in all reality, if God changes, then he can change his mind concerning his promises. Mm. If God changes, then he can change his mind concerning what's going to fall out in in the future in terms of of his providence. Um, So if God changes, you've just removed the ontological or metaphysical basis for your claim that Scripture itself is infallible. It's almost as if, you know, uh, there's this kind of confidence in Scripture— and 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 Scripture is disconnected from its its grounding in the triune God, um, and it's almost like Scripture has this being in and of itself uh, that makes it infallible and inerrant and all of this. When really Scripture is is creature, right? Scripture is revelation. God has caused Scripture to be what it is, and so we have to understand that that what we say about God. And what we think about God directly implies uh, what we think and you know uh, what we say about about Scripture. Uh, there there are there are huge implications um, on Scripture, uh, and so that's just that's just one connection that you could make to bring it down to uh, the practical level uh, for for ones uh, for one's congregation. But I would just say also that when we're thinking about God when we're contemplating God, you know, it's been said, Craig Carter, I think not too long ago uh, talked about how, you know, the doctrine of God is, is gloriously useless. And uh, what he's getting at there is, is the doctrine of God. God's not a tool. God's not an instrument. God, God is esse, and, and he's self-sufficient, self-existent and, and glorious in and of himself. So I would just commend God to, to, to God's people, as an object of their contemplation uh, mm. f- for their good and for their benefit and for their God likeness. Um, and so um, contemplate God for God's own sake. Right. Uh, and, and of course there are all sorts of, of application we could make. There are all sorts of implications that we could draw from the doctrine of God to the doctrine of other things, God's effects, God's works. Um, but ultimately we should be thinking about God for God's sake. Um uh, because he's 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 glorious and 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 warrants really contemplation for for his own sake meditation for his own sake um, and so that that's there there are several different directions we could go practically but that that one with scripture and then just contemplating God for for his own sake is is are two things that I would want to initially you know hit on
0: that is that is really good that is really good and so what what resources would you recommend to anyone who is wanting to study these things further, whether it be natural theology, divine simplicity, or things of this nature?
1: Well, because our our camp is always accused of 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 not being uh not being committed to sola scriptura, I will start with scripture, and I'll say I would commend Deuteronomy six four, which is the Shema, uh, the confession of Israel, uh, Hero Israel, the Lord God, the Lord is one. Uh, the implications of of that text alone, I think, if you if you draw the context of that and the implications of saying, you know, uttering that substantial claim about who God is, I think would get you a, a doctrine of divine simplicity. Malachi three six, uh, for I am the Lord; I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. So, the, the the very trustworthiness of God there for this in terms of the sons of Jacob, Israel, and God's people at large. Is grounded in the in the unchanging nature of, of of Yahweh in Malachi three six, and then in addition to that, I would say you know some various helps in terms of systematic theology. I've been recommending to everyone all that is in God by Dr. James Dalzell. I think that's that that was a turning point for me, and I think gosh that book was published seven years ago now, that which just doesn't even seem uh, like a reality. Maybe it was maybe it was actually published five or six years ago, but, but it was in review seven years ago or something like that. But I saw something the other day, someone had read it seven years ago, but that is a short, it's a concise book and it explains the issues. It explains why simplicity is important in addition to, you know, drawing out a doctrine of simplicity, um, and, and what it is and all of its implications. So, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's somewhat of a quick read, uh, in terms of its length, but, You're probably going to want to comb through it quite slowly um so so there's that that's the first place i would i would recommend someone someone go i think they i think they need to to go there in order to to get familiar uh with with the issue and the issues at stake in terms of divine simplicity and then there are several other works god and himself by uh by stephen doobie um and, uh, you know, the stuff that Matthew Barrett has done, None Greater and Simply Trinity are are pretty decent as well. Um, and then I would always just commend to the reader, the studious reader, uh, some more primary source material. Um, so if you want to know, you know, this conversation has sadly, in some sense, been made all about Aquinas, uh, which is, you know, Aquinas on this issue is excellent. And um, and I think a lot of it was received into the reformed and the post-reformed uh, theological corpus in general. But I would I would commend to the studious reader uh, Peter Van Maastricht's second volume uh, that's his Doctrine of God and then uh, Francis Turretin his first volume, electic Theology Institutes of electic Theology, and um, and Franciscus Junius a treatise on true theology. Uh, and that treatise on true theology would get into the natural theology. And so would Turretin, um, as well in his, in his first volume of, of the institutes. Um, so, and, and those are post-reformed guys. Those are orthodox, you know, uh, reformed theologians, you could, you could say, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, then on my own side, you know, Baptist side, uh, I would say, you know, uh, John Gill is good on, on some of this stuff, um, and uh, and uh, Benjamin Keach uh, has some stuff on on theology proper as well. So, you know, there's there's all sorts of places to go, but definitely I would commend all that is in God by Dr. James Dalzell uh, to to your audience. Well, guys, you heard it there. Uh, I will have I will try to form a
0: list and put that in the resources um, in the description. Uh, Josh, where can we continue to follow you uh, on your journey and where can we listen to your sermons and your podcasts and read your material?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so, sermons are available on sermonaudio.com. And you could just look up either Victory Baptist Church or you can look up my name. Just type in Josh Summer. And, you know, the church, you can pull up the church that way and you can pull up uh, my sermons that way. Um, and then, in terms of the stuff I do, you know, writing wise, uh, I kind of write on two platforms right now. Uh, so there's joshsummer.org, which I'm working on changing to the thebaptistbroadcast.com. Uh, but if you visit joshsummer.org, that's the Baptist Broadcast website. And, uh, and uh, you can find a lot of uh, articles there. Uh, and also there's a, a section where you can listen to the podcast. But uh, there's also my YouTube channel, which is just my name, Josh Summer. Search me up on there. Uh, and you can find it the podcast is hosted on several other you know uh, platforms spotify itunes and you can find it on anchor.fm which is the uh, the host website for for the podcast so um, i also have uh, a kind of a pastoral commentary on uh, an orthodox catechism which is like the baptist take on a heidelberg the heidelberg catechism it's called marvel misery and mercy and that's available on Amazon as well. It's the first volume out of three
0: Hmm. Well, uh, Josh, it's been good having you on the, on the podcast. This has been, this has been an intense discussion, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but it's been good. It's been helpful. Uh, and I really hope people look into the resources you've provided and I hope people, uh, in, in my audience will follow you. Um, I've enjoyed your posts. I've I've enjoyed seeing the things you put out, and I look forward to more.
1: I appreciate Uh, that, brother. Thank you very much.
0: Well, guys, uh, thank you for joining us on this edition of the Monday Morning Megaphone. Uh, We have, I don't have any other guests lined up, so we'll see what comes next week. Uh, And so stay tuned. Again, thank you for joining us, Josh. Thank you.